Father in heaven, this is our heart's cry. To know you in your suffering and in your resurrection power. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you. And my prayer for this moment of our time together is that when we sing that again later, every voice will come from a heart that means that. That our mouths will be stopped if we are hypocrites. But that every voice would be pure and authentic in affirming that you are our all. You are our joy. You're the best thing in all the universe. And Lord, we are keenly aware this morning that by this time next year, some people in this room will be dead. And I pray, O oh God, that they will die well because of what they've heard and what they've seen of you in this Passion 98. Grant us to be ready to die well, that we might live well while you give us breath. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to try to make a connection for you now between yesterday and today. Yesterday's focus was on Romans 3, uh, 25 and 26, and the statement that the deepest meaning of the cross is that God put Christ forward as a propitiation or as a expiation in order to demonstrate the righteousness of God because he had passed over sins in past times, which translates like this. Your being forgiven jeopardizes the righteousness of God. It creates a crisis in the Godhead. God is unrighteous to forgive sinners unless there is something that can happen that would set things right while letting you go scot-free. And what happened was the death of Jesus in your place. So the fundamental meaning of the death of Jesus is that God vindicated his glorious righteousness in letting you go free. God is jealous to be known as an all-glorious, all-righteous God who exalts himself infinitely. Another way to say it would be that the forgiveness of your sins is grounded not in your puny work or worth, but in the infinitely valuable work and worth of God vindicated in Christ. Or another way to say it would be 
that the essence of God's love, and we all know in this room that the love of God reaches its climax or its essence or its uh, apex, its highest point in the cross. We know that because that's what the Bible says here in his love that God sent Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. Nevertheless, what we learn now from the cross is that the essence of the love of God for us is not an exaltation of our value, but a freeing of us and an enabling of us to enjoy God exalting his value. It's a Copernican revolution of the ordinary way people think putting themselves constantly at the center. And when they become Christians in name, many of them don't cease putting themselves at the center, but develop many theologies that keep man square at the center and make much of God to the degree that he makes much of them. So concealed in many worship songs is man-centeredness. Lifting God on high precisely to the degree that he makes much of me and puts me at the center of his universe. That is not worship. It's a Christianized form of secularism and the mindset of the world. The love of God is the relentless pursuit of your joy in him. If he were to make you the center of your universe, he would be a cruel God. That was yesterday. Now, I was asked by a young woman at the resource center, whichever direction that is, last night, whether or not this was a proper translation of that message. She said, I told the students that Christ died to win or to get worship for himself. That's the point of his death. And I said, that's a good translation. And it's a good transition from yesterday to today. So the question I want to ask today is, how do we join God in the goal of the cross? If the goal of the cross is not to make much of you, but to give you the eternal joy of God's making much of God and allowing you to join him in that, how do you join him in it? How do you get on board with the purpose of God in the central act of history, namely the execution of his son for the glory of his name? How do you do that? And that's what I want to talk about today. So our goal is to ask, what is the inner essence of worship? Making much of God, magnifying God, glorifying God, whatever words will click. You know, sometimes we're prone to think that words like glorify are in-house God words that won't really work on the campus or at the office. That's really not true, I believe. You listen to sportscasters and they'll talk about glory. You know what glory is. What is the inner essence of glorifying God or of 
worship. Well, let me give a little bit of background here as far as the New Testament understanding of worship goes. I am amazed and stunned in recent years as I've looked at this at the silence of the New Testament concerning corporate worship. The main word for worship used hundreds of times in the Old Testament, proskuneo in Greek, is virtually absent from the New Testament epistles where the life of the church is regulated. It's prevalent in the Gospels because people ran up to Jesus and fell down and worshipped when he was there in person. It's prevalent in the book of Revelation because you have this portrait of the saints constantly in the presence of the risen Christ falling down in worship. But in this intervening period of history where Christ is absent in the flesh, that word is gone. And is it not amazing to you that what we're doing here in this corporate setting and what you do Sunday morning after Sunday morning is never in the New Testament called worship? That's stunning to me. Because in our vocabulary, we use the word worship almost only for what we're doing here and what we do on Sunday morning. And the New Testament never uses it in the epistles during this season. Isn't that remarkable? Rather, what the New Testament does in the letters of Paul and Peter and James and so on is to radically intensify Worship as an inner experience, making its way out, not in services primarily, but in life primarily. Let me give you a few pointers to this so you can check it out for yourself. In John 4, you remember Jesus meeting the woman at the well and um, she says to him, in a kind of diversion from the real issue. Where should we worship in this mountain, in Samaria or in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, the hour is coming and now is when you shall worship God, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, for God is seeking those who will worship him in Spirit and in truth, get the change of categories, not this mountain, spirit, not Jerusalem, truth. You kind of scratch your head and say, whoa, I thought you might say Austin. But he doesn't. In other words, there is a radical disjunction of worship from locality and a driving of worship toward inner reality, wherever you are. That's the first clue. Another clue is Matthew 15, 8 and 9. Jesus says, I hope not referring to us here, but probably to some. This people worships me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. In other words, worship is empty and vain when it's only on the lips. 
That is, when it's only a form, when it's only a worship song, when it's only a genuflection or a sacrament or a sermon. If it isn't here, if it isn't felt, if there isn't a dynamic and an affection and a delight in the heart, it isn't worship. That's the second clue of the move from locality and form to reality and intense inner heartward heart work experience. A third pointer is that in Romans 12, Paul said to present your bodies to Christ, which is your spiritual service of worship. What that means is that in the New Testament, the main, now mark this, main, the New Testament is not against Passion 98 and it's corporate worship, nor against what I'll do tomorrow morning with my people in Minneapolis in corporate worship. However, the main meaning of worship in the New Testament is presenting your bodies. That means your sex life, your eating habits, the television programs you watch, the music you listen to, the vocation you choose, presenting the bodily life on planet Earth to God as a spiritual service of worship. That's the main meaning of worship in the New Testament. And so the question I'm asking now in this message is, what makes that worship? What is the inner Godward experience of the heart that constitutes worship at its essence and finds its way out into services of praise and life of glorifying God. Now, to answer that question, if you have a Bible, I invite you to go with me to Philippians chapter 1. Or if we show it on the overhead and you don't have a Bible... We will look at it together on the screen. Philippians 1, 20 and 21. It is my earnest expectation and hope, Paul says, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but here's the alternative to being put to shame. That with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, I'll stop reading right there. What we see here in verse 20 is that Paul's passion is to magnify Christ. You see that? That's not Passion 98 talking. That's not John Piper talking. That's the inspired word of God, the passion of this man's life in his body is that Christ be exalted, whether he lives or whether he dies. His passion is in living and in dying. Christ would be seen as magnificent. So you want a goal for your life? Take it from Philippians 1.20. So live on your campus that people will see that Jesus is magnificent. Now, I'm asking how this morning. I'm asking how that comes about. 
The answer is given in the next verse, verse 21. So let's look at verse 21 and its connection with verse 20. Note the connecting word for or because. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, before we take it off the screen, notice a connection. Do you see the word life in verse 20 at the end? Corresponding to the word live in verse 21. Do you see the word death at the end of verse 20? Corresponding to the word die in verse 21. There's no accident. In verse 21, Paul is giving the ground or the reason for why his body magnifies Christ in living and dying. How is that? Well, let's take the pairs one at a time. Let's do the death pair first, and then we'll do the life pair. So in verse 20, he says, my, my passion, my expectation and my desire is that my body, when it dies, will die in a way that Christ is seen to be magnificent. In my dying. And then the way that works is given in verse 21 for to me to die is gain. Now think about that. How is Christ shown to be great or magnificent or exalted in your dying? Answer. When you're dying is experienced by you as gain. Oh, but why is it gain? Now let's look at verse 23. Let's put that on the screen. Very simple reason. My desire is to depart, that is to die, and be with Christ. The reason death is gain for Paul is because death is more of Christ. Now, let's put it together. Let's put the death pair together. The question I'm asking is, what is the inner experience of the heart that is worship? That is, that makes much of God and Christ and that works its way out into bodily experiences, including death, such that Christ just seemed to be magnificent. What is this? Now, the answer is, it is the experience of death as gain, because death is more of Christ, which is, to shorten it down even further, I will magnify Christ in my dying to the degree that I cherish Christ as gain in my dying. Which means worship is fundamentally cherishing Christ as gain. Magnifying Christ is basically treasuring, valuing, Christ as superior to life and all that life offers you in the next 60 years, including spouse and job 
and health and career and fame and retirement. If any of you dies this week, you will magnify Christ if you embrace it as gain. And if you shun it and hate it and get angry at it as loss of all you value, you will magnify the world and everything in it. Let's take the life pair. The message is the same. Let's go back to the verse on the screen, the whole verse 20 and 21. You see the word life there? I want Christ to be magnified in my body, whether I live in my life. And now verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. Now, what does that mean? He's arguing this way. He's saying, my goal is that in my body, whether I'm preaching, whether I'm in prison, whether I'm being beaten, whether I'm happy with a few of my friends in an evening meal, I want my body to magnify Christ in my living for, now here's the explanation of how it works, to me, to live, is Christ. But what does that mean? Let's go to chapter 3, verse 8. We can put that up. Here's the answer. Notice the repetition of the word gain, but here it's not gain in death, it's gain in life. I count all things to be loss. That's everything, folks, minus Christ. I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. That's what we just sang. We're going to sing it again. If you believe it, mean it when we sing it, because it's an exposition of this text. You can follow it verse by verse right through this text. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. Here it is. In order that I might gain Christ. So it's the same argument as the death pair. Only now it's life. When he says to me to live is Christ, he means I have experienced Christ in such a way that I now live as though in comparison with Christ, everything is rubbish. Have you lived that way? I assume that the hundreds of you who stood last night were saying something like, and I invite you to say it in your heart again right now. I have not lived that way. And I want to live that way. I think that's what you were saying, wasn't it? I haven't lived in such a way that to me to live is Christ. That is, to me to live, Christ is so much gain that everything is lost with Christ. And people around me see it in the way I watch television. They see it in the way I watch bowl games. They see it in the way I eat. They see it in my sex life. They see it in my money dealings. They see it in the courses I choose. They see it in my vocational aspirations. They see it in what I wear and what I drive. Christ is all to me. That magnifies Christ in life. 
So say that again in your heart right now if, if you were missing it last night. So in summary, before I give you four concluding implications of this, the inner essence of worship is a cherishing of Christ as gain. Prizing Christ is the key to gaining Christ and praising Christ. Prizing him is the key to praising him. If you don't prize him, cherish him, treasure him, delight in him, in here. He's not honored by anything you do. Can't be worshipped. It's vain. Four implications. Here we go. Number one. If this is true. If the inner essence of worship that makes its way out authentically into services of praise or makes its way out into a chaste life of sexuality and continence in your eating and circumspection in your financial dealings, if the inner essence of worship is satisfaction in Christ, then implication number one is that the pursuit of this satisfaction is your number one duty in life and is not optional. There is a popular ethic and a sophisticated philosophical ethic in the world today that says morality is defective to the degree that it is motivated by the quest for your joy. You've all heard it. Do right because it's right. Don't do right because it'll make you happy in God. Because if you do right in pursuit of your joy, the morality, the virtue of your choices are compromised and are defective. You know what I call that? Atheism. Leave the pursuit of joy in God out of the picture when you choose your acts. I say blasphemy. Rather, virtue and worship consist essentially in an unrelenting pursuit of joy in God in every song you sing, in every sacrament you take, and in every good deed you perform. Or it isn't good, and it isn't worship. Implication number two. Thinking of the essence of worship as being satisfied in God authentically in the heart preserves the radical God-centeredness of worship. Nothing makes God more supreme, whether in a worship service or in a life, than to say with your heart, money, prestige, leisure, family, 
job, health, sports, toys, friends, computers, cannot satisfy my soul. Only God can, and therefore I am on a quest for God. Nothing makes God more central in your life than for the heart to say that authentically. If in our worship services, our giving to God rather than getting from God, God in joy becomes the center. If you go to church and your mindset is I got to give, I got to give, I got to give because I've been criticized for coming to get. Subtly. What will happen in your life and in that congregation is a shifting off of the centrality of God onto the centrality of our performances in worship. Singing. Are we doing it with excellence worthily of the Lord? Instrumental playing. Is it good enough? Preaching. Does it hang together? Is it articulate? Is it worthy of the Lord? And subtly, we are no longer cherishing and valuing and delighting in God himself. And we are starting to define worship in terms of the quality of our Performances. And I'm saying that keeping in clear focus that the essence of worship is satisfaction in God guards you from that tragedy. Implication number three. Saying and believing that the essence of worship is the experience of satisfaction in God preserves worship as an end in itself and keeps it from being a manipulative means to something else on Sunday morning. You cannot, with authenticity, say to God, I am satisfied in you in order that I might get that. Even if that is my mother's salvation. Satisfaction in God, if it is real, terminates on God. And nothing else. And yet, tragically, all over America, we are being taught and models are being given that we are to worship so that the church will grow. Worship so that we can heal human hurts. Worship so that we can recruit workers. Worship so that the morale will be good in the congregation. Worship so that we can keep marriages together and all other good things as a means or as an end to this putative thing called worship. And to the degree that we think that way, 
We do not know what worship is. I cannot say to my wife, I delight in you so deeply so that you will make me dinner tonight. Why? That's not the way delight works. Delight, if it is real, terminates on her, not dinner. I can't say to Barnabas, my 14-year-old, Barnabas, I love playing ball with you in the afternoon so that you'll cut the grass on Saturday. Why can't I say that? I can't say it because that's not the way delight works. If I delight in being with Barnabas, it terminates on Barnabas. And so it is with God. We cannot say to him with any authenticity at all, I delight in you, O God, on Sunday morning, so that this church will grow. I delight in you, O God, this morning, so that my marriage will be kept together. You can't say that. God is the end and not the means. And worship understood as essentially satisfaction in God guards us from the tragedy of making God a stepping stone to good idols in the world. Now, lest I be misunderstood. It is absolutely true that where people meet God in authenticity and delight in God because he is God and find the end of all their questing at the fountain of life in God, everything else is made better. Even our suffering is made better. But if you choose to try to do this thing called worship in order to get well from cancer, you love, you love getting well from cancer first. Finally, number four, the last implication I'll mention. If it's true that being satisfied in God is the essence of worship. This explains why, as we saw earlier, the New Testament is so radical in saying that not just worship services are worship, but life is worship. Whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink. Do all to the glory of God. The reason is this. Everything in life, not just Sunday morning acts, everything in life is supposed to be motivated by your pursuit of more and more joy in God. So the thing that is the root of Sunday morning's worship songs is the root of every act you perform if you understand 
what worship really is. Now, I wrote a whole book to try to defend that called Desiring God. In fact, everything I've ever written is written to defend that. And so I can't make a big, long case for it that everything you do should be motivated by a desire for more pleasure in God. But I'll close with one text. And I think we have it also for the screen, namely Luke 12, 33. Let's look at it together. Luke 12, 33. Sell your possessions, Jesus says, and give alms, give to the poor. And in this way, it's my interpretation, provide yourselves with purses that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Now, the remarkable thing about this, look at the connection here between the first half of the verse and the second half. The first half says, strip down, be simple, have a radical wartime lifestyle, sell things, don't amass things so that you have something to give to people in need. Be a loving person. In other words, spend yourself for others. And in doing that, what will you accomplish? And this is a command. The second half of the verse here is a command. It's not just an incidental result. Provide yourselves with purses that don't grow old and with a treasure in the heavens. That's God, folks. That's not golf in the kingdom. That's not streets of gold. That's not reunion with my mother who was killed in 1974. That's God and more and more and more and more and more of God forever and ever and ever because he's an infinite God and will never let me get bored with God. He is saying, sell your possessions, give alms. Now, this is just a paradigm of the whole Christian life, isn't it? I'm just taking one verse. You can spread out over the whole New Testament and all the commands in it. Be loving people and thereby get yourself a treasure in heaven. More of God and more of God. So I argue all of life is motivated by the quest for more joy, more treasure in God. Now, if you ask, and it's a reasonable question, is that love to a person? Sounds like love to you. Does a person feel loved if you tell them, I'm doing this to you so that I can get treasure in heaven? They might not. And you'll have to say something like this. I love God so much. God is more important to me than all the money and all the possessions that I have given away to give them to you. I don't need those things. I have God. And I am giving these things to you in your need so that you will see what satisfies me. God satisfies me and frees me to give you what you need. And I'll tell you very honestly, poor person, hurting person. What you need more than me and this money is God. And my whole goal right now is for you to join me 
in enjoying God. And if you do, my joy in God, in you, will be bigger. Is that selfish? What does it mean when Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father? Not themselves as worthy of your good deed. Do you see what's happening here? I'm almost done. And the end of this message is the end of yesterday's message. Love at the horizontal level between you and your campus is not making much of them. That's a way to cultivate idolaters in the world. You don't love people by making much of them. Thousands of books are written on how to build self-esteem into your kids. Build God esteem into your kids. Build God esteem. The way you love people is not by making much of them, but by sacrificing your life, if you must, selling your possessions, if you must, in order to show them that the only hope in life is to make much of God. That's love. Anything else is cruelty to them. Hell is on the way. Suppose you give them high self-esteem and they go straight to hell. The only thing that rescues people is making much of God. Love, whether it's coming to us through the cross, is not a making much of us. It's enabling us to enjoy making much of God forever. And love from you to your family and to your classmates is not making much of them, but enabling them by the sight of your own wartime allegiance to God that they can see and enjoy and make much of an infinitely glorious God forever and be satisfied in Him. This is Passion 98. And I love the vision of this place and this event. My heart's desire, oh God, is your name and your renown. Whether I live or whether I die. Amen. Father, come. Some will not live out this year. Come. And get them ready to die well, oh God. That they might live well, oh Father. Reveal these things. Knowing you, Jesus. Knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy. My righteousness. And I and we love you.